Welcome back to Bob Like a Hole, the podcast where three friends take a record and we pull it apart track by track. Sometimes we do a deeper dive. And right now, we're in episode two of a two-part series of Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band. The album we are covering tonight is Darkness on the Edge of Town. In the last episode, we did a brief overview of Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band's discography. Also talked about their place in pop culture and a little bit of the history of the E Street Band. Tonight, we will be going in deep to find the darkness that lies in the darkness at the edge of town. I want to talk about these album covers. So Bruce is always, uh, you know, he's always put himself on his albums, which is fine. That's what people did at the time. The majority of them are his face. He's a handsome guy. He's the star of the band. Um, and look, look, this, this is going to move units. Look at that guy. Look, look what he's doing. I'm showing the guys the cover of the river. Like he's making love to you with his eyes. And then, uh, you know, yeah, he put his ass on the cover for, uh, uh born in the USA, which my wife actually <laughs> had our two year old at the time get professionally photographed for me. That's a cute photo I have of my son's toddler, baby button jeans with a red rag sticking out in front of American flag. Um, Actually, it was a whole photo shoot with a bunch of uh, Bruce Springsteen stuff. My wife has always really, even when we didn't have a lot of money, she would go buy like those expensive box sets that were coming out and stuff of, of Bruce stuff for me. Always appreciated it. Very nice of her to keep me uh, up, up, up to date with the newest Bruce things coming out. Good lady. But these album covers, I mean, you've got... You know, first it's, it's, it's his pretty face are on them with uh, the early ones, and they're kind of artistically done. And then around the time of a uh, tunnel of love, you know, you've got him with a uh, like a tuxedo jacket and jeans, and like a, a western shirt with a bolo tie, leaning against a car, and you're starting to think, well, maybe Bruce is going through some things here. And then with Lucky Town. In human touch, I mean, one of those is just like his hand, but then the other one's like him looking really disheveled, like he just got done a bender. He uh, can't like his beard doesn't connect. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, like, listen, I I can't grow like my beard doesn't connect. I will not take a picture of an album cover of me uh, with a with a beard like that. Yeah, so things aren't looking too good there. And then you know, Ghost Tom Joe, it's whatever. It's like some weird '90s art piece. But then you know, something happened around the turn of the century, though. So I'm trying to make a point of here. And um, magic is just his like a weird painting of like a weird negative image of him with his soul patch, just him in a T-shirt <laughs> working on a dream is uh, like a Ringo Starr, you know, <laughs> butterfly band. George Harrison. Yeah. 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 <laughs> and then, uh, you know, High Hopes is this this photo of like him with a really tight leather shirt on and his guitar with a red backdrop. And then the one that takes the cake is like uh, the, the album covers. I don't expect much from his album covers at this point, but God damn it. The album cover for letter to you. <laughs> I don't know if you guys ever look closely at that thing. It looks like something that uh, 
yeah, I, like it looks like my aunt who has things up in her house to say like live, laugh, love would have put together. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's a photo of Bruce with the, you know, bundled up in the snow oh, and yeah. close up. And it looks, I think like maybe you can even see his breath and it says letter to you on it. And it is written in this font that looks like something <laughs> that like Hallmark uh, on their worst day wouldn't come up with a, a font this bad. It is, it is bad. <laughs> so yeah. Uh, album covers are not uh, Bruce's strong suit. Well, I will leave it at that. So yeah, <laughs> darkness of the edge of town going back to 1976 or so. Darkness of the edge of town comes out. It's recorded uh, and very informed by the lawsuit that's going on at the time. Um, it can't be recorded until the lawsuit's done, but a lot of the lyrics are a reflection of what went on in this lawsuit. Uh, 1976, he was in a dispute with his manager, Mike Appeal, that I was referring to earlier, and it was all over his contract. The terms on the original deal sucked, and Bruce didn't want to sign a new contract with him until the contract got made to be better. Um, Mike was a big C- Colonel Tom Parker fan, so that tells you kind of how, how he was. Um uh, Bruce Springsteen and Born to Run says, I loved Elvis and it was a fun concert for the conceit for the two of us, but I wasn't going to be Elvis. Those days were gone. I was intentionally trying not to be Elvis. I was motivated by powerful internal forces to determine the arc of my work and the life I was going to lead, which means having somebody that was trying to lord over you and control you was going to drive you crazy. Um, eventually, they, they just couldn't come to an agreement, so it went to court. And the judge said that until the matter was settled, that Bruce could not make any further recordings uh, under the terms of the deal with Columbia Records. And for a guy like Bruce Springsteen, this drove him crazy. So he wrote and 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 toured and toured and toured until the lawsuit was uh, figured out. And once the lawsuit was figured out, they were able to go and get in the studio and record this album. Um. It affected his mindset. It depressed him. It made him feel very hopeless. Uh, Paraphrasing some of the things he said is just that when you live your whole life to achieve your dream and you get your dream and then someone says you can't have your dream any longer, that's the darkest thing that you could see. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what was going through his mind. And a lot of that you hear on this album. Um, When they finally got into the studio... The E Street brand was comprised of Roy Bitten, Clarence Clemens, Danny Federici, Gary Talent, Max Weinberg, and uh, little Steven. John Landau produ- producing and Chuck Plotkin missing. Uh, Roy Bitten, if that name sounds familiar, that's because he played uh, piano on the album we talked about, or one of the albums we talked about last week. He's a piano player for the E Street band to this day, nicknamed The Professor. And he was on Peter Gabriel's albums. He's a great piano player.
kind of reminds me of a more constrained Mike Garson. That's uh, what I think of when I listen to him. Uh, Clarence Clemens, the big man, big saxophone player. Um, the story of him joining the band is one of legend. And uh, here's him telling it himself. Norman in a bar down the street. It goes back a little further than that. I'll take you back a little bit. <clears throat> Karen Cassidy was a singer in uh, Norman's band. Norman was a, a Jewish guy with a big red afro, and uh, he, he did cover music, you know. We did cover, cover things. And uh, he took a chance for hiring me back in those days, in the 70s, a black man playing this white band. And uh, a lot of people didn't hire him. But the music was so good and so strong, he says, we got to, I got to do this. I want to, he took the step, and that's what really impressed me with Norman, that he took the step to, to hire me in this band because the music was good. And I know it wasn't really what I was looking for, but I was playing as what I wanted. I was playing in the soul band. Uh, we were playing at uh, Fort Monmouth, and... Uh, we're coming back and the car breaks down in front of this bar and I hear this music. Whenever I heard music, I wanted to play. So I took my horn and went into this place and uh, there was Norman. And uh, he had this girl singer named Karen Cassidy. Karen and I became good friends. Uh, Norman hired me. I left the black band and, uh, because it was just, just wasn't going anywhere. I wasn't into that James Brown thing all, all the time, all the time. I wanted some adventure. I wanted something new. Rock and roll was new to me, right? Because I grew up in a very religious background and very soulful music, and I got into the soul music. And but I wanted to rock. I was a rocker. I was a born rock and roll sax player. And uh, anyway, I started playing with Norman. I left. I mean, I started playing with Norman, and uh, but Norman was playing rock and roll, you know. And that's why I dug about it. And we were just cooking, man. And uh, this girl Karen is driving me. She says, "I got this friend. You got to meet him. You got you got to meet this guy." And she every night, every time we went somewhere, you got to meet this guy, Bruce, 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 Bruce. I said, "Okay, okay. One day we're gonna meet him." And uh, about two months before I had a chance to really meet him, because I was always working and he was always working. And so we happened to be playing in Asbury Park at the same time. I played in a matinee, and he was at the at the Wonder Bar, which was about three blocks north of, uh, of uh, the Student Prince. And uh, big northeast blew in and started raining this night and I was just leaving the club. And I, I walked down to the Student Prince and it was, I mean, it was thunder and lightning. And uh, Bruce tells this story and it's really true. And uh, I walked into the club and uh, opened the door and the wind actually tore the door out of my hand and blew it down the street. So all the bouncers go running down the street after the door, and I'm standing there with this lightning and thunder behind me, and I walk in. It's you know, a black guy walking to a white club, you know? I was like, whoa, wait a minute. And I walked over, so to, and I, found who, I found out who Bruce was, and I walked over and said, I want to sit in. 
I said, sure, you know, whatever you want to do. <laughs> so I sat in and it was a magical moment. I swear, I have never, I will never forget that moment, you know. And right now when I'm on stage with Bruce, I still feel that moment. It was something that all my answers, all those bands I played with, all the things I was searching for, and all the things I wanted to do was right there. Because he didn't play cover music, he was playing, he played all his original stuff, you know, and I loved it, man. It was just, it was just so natural for me. It just felt like I was supposed to be there. It was like, it was a very magical moment. He looked at me and I looked at him and we fell in love. And that's, and that's still there. It's still there. Clarence was the big man, and on some some songs you'll hear the, the scooter and the big man referred to as Bruce and and uh, Clarence. So his saxophone and his persona was definitely a big part of what made the E Street Band great on album and live. Danny Federici was their organ player, nicknamed the Phantom. He's a good organ player. He's been with the band up until 2008 when he passed away. Gary Talent is the bass player and the only original member of the E Street Band that is in it to this day. He's only missed one show, and it was because of COVID. Max Weinberg was the drummer. We talked a little bit about him when we were talking about Conan. Max is not your typical John Bonham-type uh, rock and roll drummer. He's more of a Buddy Rich just, uh, jazz drummer. And when you watch him play, like you look at the way he holds his sticks, he's definitely... That's why he sits upright too, Mark. He's a very classic type of drummer but he can keep a beat. He's perfected the money beat as they call it. And um, he's very professional. I, I love myself some Max Weinberg. And he's a funny guy too, as we've seen in the year. I forgot to mention, this is little Steven's first record, uh, the rhythm guitar, uh, little Steven. And uh, he toured with the band before, but this is uh, the first record that he plays guitar on and backup vocals and does some arrangements. And uh, he's a total character and he was on the Sopranos. And the reason that he wears that scarf all the time is not because he's going bald like Axl Rose. It's because he has a huge scar on his head, so he can't bro- properly grow hair there. No, there you go. Yeah. 
themselves up and the uh, studio it's one of those uh, studio living in the house situations the documentary and the promise shows much of this a lot of footage of them recording song after song after song uh, going through a pile of songs that Bruce wrote while the lawsuit was going on and whittling it down to its bare essence which became darkness on the edge of town Bruce with the exception of the river was a great editor of his material uh, especially in these days, I think he really got down. If something wasn't good enough to be on the album, it wasn't going to make it onto the album. And many songs that I think were good enough to be on the album were left off of the album, which is found in the box set, The Promise. But before we get any more lost in history or box sets or lawsuits, let's talk about this record, Darkness on the Edge of Town. When it was released in June of 1978, for the most part, a lot of people said, hey, this goddamn record, this is going to be great. Rolling Stone gave it five stars. Enemy liked it. Um, there really wasn't a lot of dispute. This was the instant classic. It was a little bit more mature. And people knew that from the start. And even Bruce said that, like, this is a record. Bruce thought he had something to prove with Born to Run. He was kind of put in a pedestal and a guy like that, even though he was extremely, um, he was his own biggest critic and he had his own insecurities. And at the same time, he, 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 to this day says he knows how good he is. And so he wanted to prove was it wasn't a fluke. I, I want to find out what I really got and I'm not going to rely on a bunch of studio tricks it's just going to be me and the band, and we're going to record this thing almost live over and over again. And it was kind of a reaction to the Born to Run hype. And that's why I feel that um, this one has a lot less of the party atmosphere and a lot more of the realism on it. Uh, and uh, yeah, it, uh, you hear it on the album. The guy that was the next big thing wanted to prove he could make something a little less uh, neat and shiny. Stumbling through the promised land 
So the first track right out of the gate is something I still, you can tell that it was made by the band that made the uh, last album. And that's the song Badlands. Instant classic, played live to this day. Um, those opening drums, uh, they, 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 they hook you. And uh, the, the opening drums and the, the, the clanging piano, and then the guitar kind of zooms in. And uh, like the guitar actually sounds like it zooms. Um, he slides his, his, his hand down the uh, fretboard. And this song, right, it's a big, big, loud sounding song but it still sounds raw. And part of this, I think is because the quality of his singing right out of the gate. I think he's a better singer on this album. Um, he's smooth. He's got a big, big boom to his voice, but it's still smooth and controlled. And I, I can, I can even hear a little bit of that Roy Orbison coming through. Uh, the production on this album is, is what you expect from them. It's very good. But the, what stands out to me on this first track and throughout this record is the production on the drums uh, are amazing. Um, the production on this track is, is, is very amazing to me. Each time a new instrument gets to come in, be it the, uh, the drums or then uh, the, the, the piano or the blasting saxophone and the vocals, it's all separated very well. Eric, what do you think about Badlands? Oh, it's a great opener. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, it hits you with that, you know, it's, it's got a, this repetitive guitar rhythm that's based, the riff is based on Don't Let Me Be Misunderstood by the Animals. Um, and, but it's, it's edgy in the way it's, it generally sounds. It's, it's still got that wall of sound um, production quality that I love so much that Bruce does with the E Street Band um, on during this era. Uh, poor man want to be rich, rich man want to be king, and a king ain't satisfied until he rules everything. Um, it's just that, like, uh, I don't know, that 
kind of and not to say anti-capitalist but that like uh that uh, kill the landlord kind of attitude on this album that i appreciate um and uh yeah it's fun there's a massive sax sax shredding that's happened which is great it's very engaging opener i'm all about it yeah the those lyrics that you said there too i wrote those down i've always loved those lyrics and remember when i was saying earlier sometimes he writes things in a way that i think just sound good and he's trying to say something the delivery of those lines are great. And then don't forget the next two lines where I want to go out tonight. I want to find out what I've got. That goes back to him trying to prove something on this record. Um, and yeah, yeah the, the, the sax solo, as you say, is just uh, fantastic. Um, I've got some more to say about the lyrics after Mark probably talks about the lyrics too, among other things. Yeah. Badlands. It uh, with starts the record off with this kind of prancing melody. Don't you can only see a horse doing dodge to it, dodge to it. That's like a feature, <laughs> not a bug. You know what really strikes me about that is that sometimes it almost sounds like a celebration. Uh, lyrically, it is not a celebration. It is about trying to put the work in to turn something bad into something good. A little different than the the born to run message of we've got nothing but freedom. I feel like because of the events of what was happening with his manager and being sued and being withheld from recording, you're starting to see a different, darker side of Bruce. The song Badlands itself, the title, the national park out in South Dakota that's supposedly very expansive. That we're large. That went on a murderous rampage in Nebraska, which had some inspiration for his album, Nebraska. And uh, so I think there's some connection there in the fact that I think Bruce saw a movie poster titled Badlands. Um, I think this was some of the inspiration for writing this title. That movie starring Martin Sheen yeah. is very good. I've never very seen good. it. I've heard it's really good, though. Um, but I, I, man, this fucking track, the floor tom hits, man. Mm-hmm. Nothing can be real. Boom. Nothing. And like uh, the way that Springsteen is even singing, it's a little Kermit the Frog, but uh, I like it. I, I think it's and listening to it on headphones. Man, there's reverb for days on, on his vocal tracks. I, I think that's great. It just goes off into the distance. I love this opening track. Classic. Yeah. Talk about a dream. Try to make it real. You wake up at the night with a fear. So real that drum hits. Yeah. Another lyrics on, I mean, let the broken heart stand as the price you've got to pay. Keep pushing until it's understood. And these band lands start treating us good. Fucking guy. Uh, (laughs) Other things you mentioned on the guitar solo is great. He has a lot of good guitar solos in this record. This is one of them. The the part where it just drops down to the drums and the and there's a little piano flourish there. And it goes into the for the ones who had a notion, a notion deep inside that it ain't no sin to be glad you're alive. I want to find one face that ain't looking through me. I want to find one place. I want to spit in the face of these bad lands. It goes into the goddamn verse or lyric again. It's incredible. I actually I for my son. Uh, his first and second birthday. Uh, I bought him one year. I bought him born to run 
and his own copy of uh, Darkest in the Edge of Town. And I typed up big, long letters that I hope he reads when he's older um, and put them in there. And um, I specifically name checked that that lyric, like, it ain't no sin to be glad you're alive. That's so fucking profound. That is just poetry. You know, that's something that people should remember is that uh, you shouldn't feel guilty for, you know, your situation um, or just wanting to have something better for yourself. You shouldn't feel guilty for wanting to pushing until people treat you good. It's a great shit. Um, yeah. Uh, Badlands. Instant hit. Uh, at times, it's been my favorite Bruce song. It's been supplanted. Uh, that's a rotating uh, number one. But uh, Badlands have been up there. It goes into Adam Raised a Cane. Adam Raised a Cane. The song title is some more of that great Springsteenian wordplay that just sounds good, but also, you know, means something and biblical, uh, you know, Cain and Abel. In this case, Cain being raised by Adam. Um, this, this song has some of his best guitar work. Again, this, this song, it's not flashy, but it's just fucking intense. It's passionate. And uh, good luck to anybody that tries to cover this song note for note. Um, Springsteen says this song is emotionally autobiographical. Uh, he had a, a bitter but loving relationship with his dad. It was never bad, but it was very cold for, for many, many, many years. Um, and uh, it, it wasn't until Bruce had kids of his own that his dad decades later said, man, I don't think I was that good to you guys. And, uh, you know, him and him and his father, after years of just having an, uh, like a cold war that dated back to his youth, uh, when he had his own kids, uh, his dad kind of changed. And I think a lot of us, some of us have gone through that. Um, but that's not what this song is about. The song is about, you know, the estrangement in the moment and it's heated. Uh, this, this Springsteen told the producer, Imagine a movie showing two lovers having a picnic and the scene suddenly cuts to a dead body. This song is that body. The song is very intense. It's uh, after the jubilant opener of Badlands, you know, even, you know, based upon lyrically how you feel about Badlands, but Badlands is upbeat. This song, nothing that the E Street Band did yet sounded like this song. It is almost... uh has the intensity of a metal song. It's not metal, but it's, it's intense. Um, it's got, you know, on one hand, you got this bar house groove in these organs 
But then you've got this guitar frenetically strumming and later a hell of a solo and the vocal delivery, his voice sometimes croaks, it shreds. It is not cool and collected. Uh, this song kind of reminds me of the, the E street band's version of the bad seeds. It's dark. It's swampy. It's menacing. It's evil. It's raw. It is played live to this day, I think, because it is a good song, but also it's so unlike the rest of their catalog. And this song would fit right in uh, season three of Twin Peaks, The Return at the uh, the bar at the end of each episode. I can imagine them performing this song. Adam raised a cane, Mark. Did he ever? electrifying uh, meaning that the guitar riff sounds like a live wire uh, it is so good i remember possibly just possibly i'm not sure if my timeline or if my memory is a little fuzzy on this but i think i heard this song for the very first time in the final season of sons of anarchy that song or definitely fit the theme of the show Outside of that, of how I personally relate to it, is two out of three hosts on this very show have had a very complicated relationships with their own fathers. And so this song definitely holds a little bit more of emotional weight for me um, of just how things can be strained and being a disappointment in your own father's eye. Because I do think the perspective from this song is coming from Adam. In that biblical sense that Cain, you know, killed Abel and had to wear like a thing, a mark of damnation on his forehead and, and all of that shit. The Aesop's fables nonsense. But, you know, it is what it is. It's biblical, as uh, Tom Hardy would say on Peaky Blinders. But this song, I tell you, man. It, it is definitely in my top five, if not my top five, my top ten Springsteen. It's Springsteen at his angriest, and his vocal performance, my God, so good. I mean, shredding those vocal cords, man. It is uh, unbelievable. The song definitely is something else. And in between the shredding, you know, the verses do cool it down a little bit, and he... And even the guitar kind of locks in with the rest of the band. And it's, it's, uh, there's a moment in the eye of the hurricane. But then the bridge to the chorus starts building and then the chorus happens again and it, it gets crazy. It's, uh, it's wild. Uh, Eric, did, did, did Adam raise a cane for you? Yeah, sure did. And I definitely made those Twin Peaks connections, at least superficially. Um, I appreciate what you said, Mark, about, because you got the theme like dead on it's it's it it references biblical stuff but it's really about a complication complicated relationship with the father and like looking at you know the you know yeah Cain did some shit but where where did it come from where's the source then you know like that responsibility of a, of, of a father to to pass on some morals and 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 you know what happens when they don't do their job it's uh yeah it's it's an, it's a very impactful song and it's still edgy like it yeah you like you said like a barhouse blues song sure 
but the uh the triple tempo guitar riffs that happen from the beginning are insane those are absolutely insane and they happen like right like measure two they come in um uh just just shredding on those riffs uh, or on those frets um anyways it's a very cool follow-up song a really a perfect track too i, I like it that's a great point. It is a good track too. sequencing. He was a master of sequencing. And uh, yeah, he uh, little Steven was the one on this track that pushed it to be rawer and the guitars to be louder. And I, I don't know. I might mention it later in my notes or I might mention it now. But yeah, one of the, the themes that Springsteen goes back to with fathers and sons or parents actually is just it is a parent's job. Like as a parent, at the very least, if you cannot pass your bullshit down to your kids, you've done a good job. <laughs> and uh, a little bit of that going on here. Um, and it's so, so, so intense that, you know, it leads into the next track, Something in the Night, um, which is intense in its own way. one word written and highlighted in my notes and that's just drums uh this track it it has this track is something that only the e street band could make i think i mean it's got it's got some a pretty twinkling over here then it's got overwhelming uh just you know, rhythm section over here and it's on one hand it's got sections where the lyrics are impassioned and pretty again. But then at the same time, you've got literal parts where the boss is howling like a cat in heat. This is all in the same song. It all starts with those drums though. The drums that open this track, you don't, you don't like, you don't realize you're hearing them until you hear them. And this drum roll keeps going and going and going. And the boss is vocalizing and these drums are, keep building and you've got the guitars kind of strumming and the piano twinkling, but the drums are coming and the drums are coming and the drums are coming and then they're here. And then the drums just crash. And then the wailing really begins and the groove kicks in and it goes right into the verse. It's masterful. It is a, it's a, it's a symphony of passion. And I, it's one of my favorite openings to a rock song. Um, 
lyrically on this track, like I said, you know, Bruce has talked openly about therapy and his struggles and this song, he's got a lot of tracks to me that, uh, could be listened to in the dead of night when you're looking into the middle distance and you're by yourself. I mean, actually this album's like full of those songs. This is one of them to me. Um, there is something in the night and I like the, the, that feeling is, uh, captured very well on this track. Um, an interesting thing about this track is that it started more as a romantic track and it was one of the ones that, uh, right before the lawsuit happened, they were playing live already. And a lot of the, the lyrics were written from the perspective of a, a woman. And, uh, many of his songs actually, uh, either are telling stories about her, you know, from perspectives of, uh, the fairer sex. And, um, they, they changed, they started, he started changing the lyrics. Uh, some of the lyrics that were talking about, like, you know, she said she was born with nothing and she was better off that way. And, uh, that, that kind of became, well, well, you're born with nothing and you're better off that way. And then, you know, as soon as you've got something, they'll send somebody to try to take it away. Um, it started to become more about somebody trying to take something away from you, which is how he felt that that whole lawsuit was uh, happening. And in the way the song actually closes, it definitely, you know, nothing is forgotten or forgiven when it's your last time around. And I've got stuff running around my head that I just can't live down. Uh, when we found the things we loved, they were crushed and dying in the dirt. We tried to pick up the pieces and get away without getting hurt. But they caught us at the state line and burned our cars in one last fight and left us running burned and blind, chasing something in the night. Uh, emotionally exhausting. And during all of this, Max Weinberg's drums are loud. They're produced very well. And I think the reason they don't play this song live very often is it has to be emotionally exhausting to go back to this place. It was such in the moment of uh, a problem he was going through, thinking his livelihood that was based around his art and his passion was going to get taken away from him. Something in the night. Steve nailed all the music pieces. I don't have a lot to add to that, except that the piano riff, it is twinkling in the background, but I think it's pretty iconic. Um, and the lyrics, yeah, it's, is it about lovers on the run where people are being judged for being in love or is it about criminals on the run? Um, either way, you know, Bruce was feeling like uh, persecuted for, uh, you know, exploring his art and what he was doing. Uh, yeah, great track. It falls in and it truly is a, a, uh, emotional roller coaster and, uh, satisfying, you know, musically as you follow the threads. And this song actually brought tears to my eyes. Um, and because I feel that emotional connection as I was following along to the lyrics, well, you're born with nothing and better off that way. As soon as you've got something, they send someone to try and take it away. Um, obviously, he's hinting upon what was happening with his own manager who got him that success with Born to Run and it all fell apart so fast. But even if you're not like in that particular specific incident or experience, we've all had something that we could probably equate that that feeling of just 
isolation and aloneness and just having to figure it out and process it on your own. And sometimes you need to be isolated and away from people. Um, the song hits so emotionally. Uh, and I would say that I always thought that Nick Cave was my favorite lyricist, but it's stuff like this that makes me appreciate. Um, and I think me and Steve are not lyrics guys. We're more how, how does the music make us feel? Not so much what is being said, but it's the music that uh, we connect to. But when you come across lyrics such as this, that are so profound, it just hits you in your heart, in your soul. And this is one of those songs that just does that for me. I, it is an achievement on all levels, musically and lyrics. Yeah, on this podcast, Eric's always a lyric guy. We always talk about that. There's a lot of times where I'm like, I don't know what they said. I don't care. But with Springsteen, yeah, that's probably why I gravitate to him so much. And many, 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 many other people do. Is his lyrics, they're poetic, but they're easy to wrap your head around. A lot of times they could appeal to everyone, but they're never like, it's not like he doesn't put work into it. I think it just comes to him naturally. He's a natural born poet. I think on this album moving forward too, he starts to break the lyrics down to a level that's not wordy, but still gets you in the feels, if you will. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's, that's why so many people, that's why I return to him so often. It's a full package to me. It's four quadrants. The performances are good. The songwriting is great. The songs, the music sounds good and his lyrics typically are great. And when he misses with his lyrics, he misses so fucking hard it's amusing how bad he misses like uh, the song, the secret garden from the fucking nineties is all about giving his wife head. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, he, and, he, and he's gone on record about it. So, you know, I mean, Hey man, <laughs> God bless him. He's like Sam uh, Jackson and true romance. Say the pussy ate the ass. Say the whole damn thing. Yeah. That's uh, yep. But uh, yeah, no, the lyrics in this song are great. This album are great. He's a good lyric guy. And, and to your point, Mark, Listening to this album over and over again to write the lyrics. I've heard this album a thousand times. It might be my favorite record ever made. I don't know. Have I ever said that in the podcast before? Probably. But whatever album I was talking to about then and this one, they're tied. Whatever. Great record. And still, when you have to like listen to this record and write the fucking notes down, it's emotionally exhausting. <laughs> There's a few songs on this one. You're like, oh, my God. Ugh. It's, uh, I think I'm covered in sweat. Um... <laughs> couple other people that are covered in sweat candy and candy's boy and uh, candy's room is the next track where we pick it up a little bit
Jimmy's Room is an upbeat rocker. Um, by the time you realize how great it is, it's done. It's a quick song. It's brief. Uh, this album is edited down to the brass tacks. This album is only like 43 minutes long, maybe 45. And uh, I like this. One thing I like about this song is it. There, I've heard different versions of it that mutated. There's another version of it called Candy's Boy off the Promise box set, which is completely different. Uh, you know, I'm not a I'm not a remix guy. I'm not a demo guy. Usually, like I want the final version of a song and I stick to it. But again, I just like the lyrics. I make exceptions for uh, Springsteen. Uh, but the final version of Candy's Room is awesome. When I first heard this song, I remember like the first time I listened to this album. I remember the first time I heard this song. And just captured my imagination again with the drums. The drums really get going on this track. There's a, uh, there, there's a, there's a bit where Max kind of does like a wipeout type uh, drum roll and the pianos are getting grand and building and building this out. The song is a very rising action song. When the line baby, if you want to get wild hits, then the pianos start to do like this racing down the plains of the West, like riding your horse faster and faster kind of feel. And I, I love that. There's this grandiosity of this song, which is about a hooker. As soon as you say, is this song about a hooker? Everything stops and there's a guitar wailing and there's like a rumble and like a kick drum or a tom and the panels start thudding and the guitar starts calling and responding with the vocals. If you're listening for it and you're just like, whoa, this is a, this is a lot going on here. And then it's over. And by the time you start to think about how much is going on, the song is done. Candy's room. Candy's room, hi hats, drums, uh, marching band beats. I mean, we're uh, moving along as we are almost in the room, in the position of this particular narrator having a uh, experience with a woman of the night, uh, because <laughs> things are moving fast. Things are feeling uh, a, a little uh, uneasy, but. Feeling the heat, feeling the excitement. It's it's a fucking passionate song, and I think I think Bruce isn't right. He writes about passion well when he wants to. I think. I mean, I just mentioned a song where he goes down on his wife, but uh, this song's sexy. I think, even though it's about kind of you know, it, it it might be about you know, lady of the night, but there's still some passion there. I mean, it's uh, I, I guess up to debate whether this song is really truly about a uh, experience with a you know a lady of experience uh, versus a teenage masturbatory <laughs> like what we three have felt in eighth grade looking at the the girl across the classroom feeling so you know i i don't know i mean it, you know, even Springsteen said, you know, when he was asked, is Candy a prostitute? He was like, well, does it really matter? You know, it because we've all been there. We've all felt that, like, what would it be like to be with, quote unquote, Candy? Oh, I thought you, I thought you were saying we've all been with a prostitute. And I was like, Mark, well, you know, we've never we're going to talk about that again. And to admit it on the podcast is a very <laughs> bold thing to do. Yeah, I know I'm going to edit this thing. Now I have to think about if I'm leaving that in or not. <laughs> Well, the, the, the movie Milk Money was a t- uh, this song in particular fucking rocks. It's great. Everything's working. Eric, what do you think about Candy's Room? Did you walk down the dark hall to Candy's Room? Nope, I get it. I was trying to remember what's the fucking movie about the 
pizza delivery guy that starts boning his his clients. Uh, I don't know why I felt <laughs> like this this made sense. But... Log jamming. <laughs> Log jamming. <laughs> I'm here so, to fix on a cobble. Well, there's a movie. There's a movie, and I don't remember which one it is. But anyways, whatever. Candy. Great time. All enjoy learning about ourselves through candy. Um, song itself has a pretty avant-garde guitar solo in it, but musically I have zero notes. Um, you know, it's 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 sexy. It, it, it does what it came to do, and um, doesn't rank high on this record for me. But hey, uh, it, you know, uh, boners at attention. Next song. All right, so after Candy's room, we, we, we race down the tunnel, and now we race out of her house, and we're racing in the street. Racing in the street.
If I had to pick one song, if I was going to talk about Bruce Springsteen with, if I had to pick one song to make the podcast about, it might be this song. Um, this song affects me profoundly. It is another one where the first time I heard it was like with Candy's Room, I was like, I, man, there's a lot going on in this track. I can't believe it. With uh, with Racing in the Street, I kind of just sat back and I was like, what uh, what does it all mean, man? It's um, it is full of atmosphere, and it manages to have uh, make make you feel in a way. I, I'm talking a lot about feeling tonight because uh, the the boss and the E Street Band make you feel things with the way that they put stuff together. You know, th- this track, like, if you just want to sit down and kind of reflect on uh, where things are at with you and those you care about and what's what do you got left that you can do um again a late at night track i think it's perfect for that uh, when the first time the organ kicks in with the, the drumstick tapping uh it just i couldn't believe what i was hearing it sounds very isolated and very warm at the same time uh well some men just give up living and start dying piece by piece it just like after that line is done, uh, it just starts. It just sounds so good. And soon after that, the entire band falls in and there's a tonight tonight. You know, we're going to go racing in the street. It's subtle rising action, but it's not overpowering. And for the last verse, they, they have this moment where they let the silence hang there. And then this organ kicks in again. And the piano and the pretty singing happen, and the whole band comes in again. And this happens in a few different parts of the song where they just let the silence hang there as long as they need to. And then the organ kicks back in. And again, it almost makes me cry. Um, the, the extended outro with the piano is one of my favorite moments in the entire discography. It they, they give the piano player some and live. They really let him go. And he, he jams out for another like two minutes and the rest of the band is restrained while the piano gets to do its thing. Uh, it fades out slowly on the album version. It leaves you wanting more. Uh, Bruce was really into the four corners of a record. You know, the first and the last track on side A and the first and the last track on side B being sequenced well. I think when this song ends, you need it to be the last side of the record because I feel emotionally drained after I listen to it. and it's just a beautifully put together song. Um, the organ, the use of silence when needed, the subtlety of the other instruments and the piano being kind of the star. I love it very much racing in the street. Eric, have you ever raced in the street? Uh, not me personally. No, no, but um, one, honeycombs. One time, he strikes me as someone who drives a sensible ten right. miles below the oh, speed. Oh yeah, limit. no, no, no. Uh, you know, a five five mile an hour window, not a not a not a not a <laughs> mile per hour above it. But uh, yeah, no, no, no. I I never did. But back when I was in high school, uh, the principal told us we would not be allowed to cross dress at the switch rally, the uh, switch dance, and so a riot happened. People refused to go to class. 
They ran out to Madison Avenue and drag race down the street. It was an exciting day, exciting day of, of protest amongst a bunch of rich white kids. Um, racing in the street, though. Are you serious? I'm not joking. That is a real story from my high school <laughs> career. Yeah. Wait, wait, hold on. They weren't able to cross dress. It was a switch? tradition. It was a tradition. But no more, my principal said. Principal, uh, yeah, he said no more. It's offensive. And they said, we're not going to third period. And they ran out to Madison Avenue and they drag raced down the streets. The cops showed up. and <laughs> Hold on. Hold on. Did they race down the street and drag or were they drag no, racing? They drag race because they weren't allowed to be in drag, you know, so it was on the news. This is very top. Yeah, it was on this the is, news. This is, this is very topical for today. I know. I know. Is this this. <laughs> This is where, hold on, hold on. Was was Ron DeSantis like on the student council? <laughs> I know Ben Shapiro is already crafting his next well, see, episode based on the story. I don't know if our principal was trying to be sensitive to possibly our uh, gender fluid uh, student body or if he didn't want any of that cross-dressing. I, I don't know if it was too conservative or too progressive. I have no idea. Don't know what happened to him. All I know is he liked to wear very tight leisure pants and you could always see his member next uh moving on uh <laughs> uh this song though is is a fantastic piece of work steve i'm right with you the oregon does the heavy lifting it's a really it's minimalist musically the musical compositions uh, there's a lot of air and space in this which benefits the track um it is a song about uh uh you know street racing and like um but just just connecting that to, um, you know, a relationship and, uh, uh, you know, the, uh, escaping your past. She stares, uh, into the night with the eyes of one who hates just for being born. Uh, there's some heavy stuff mm -hmm. going on. Um, and, uh, but at the same time, you know, there, there are like three or four songs on this album about racing, or at least it comes up like that's, that's pretty cool. Like thematic thing that ties it back to old, like fifties and sixties rock culture. I appreciate that. Uh, but this one itself, you know, a lot of times it's like, it's never just about racing usually, but also so much of his stuff is just about escaping or leaving the situation you're in. But I, I'm sorry. No, no, I, I agree with you. And it's not just about racing. I mean, this, you know, this one in particular is, is, uh, you know, living on the edge, the risk, risky, risky, uh, stuff, um, to kind of escape your, your, your present situation. And then having that, you know, having that person that, that, the, you know, girlfriend or, uh, somebody at your side that, that understands that. Um, anyways, uh, this is great. And tonight my baby and me are going to drive to the sea and wash the sins off our hands. Just that kind of like dream that hope for the future that shedding your past. I just mean the racing is like that kind of nostalgic piece that exists in Springsteen's music. Um, but really that Oregon, holy hell. Uh, and it's a long minimalistic jam. I, I appreciate this song quite a bit. You know, it's funny about the racing is that uh, he he didn't learn how to drive until he was like 22 or 23. And so he was writing songs about racing all the time uh, before he knew how to drive. 
which is uh, hilarious to me. It's a great track. I mean, it is very sentimental uh, about a guy that feels nothing um, in his personal life that needs that supercharge of racing in the street. You know, working all day in the factory, what's going to really raise his heart rate? It's racing in the street. And, uh, you know, the themes of this song, um, whether it be racing or just looking for anything that makes you feel alive, uh, it I think we can all relate to that in a certain sense. doesn't necessarily have to be street racing, even though now I can see why Steve was the first of us that became a fan of the Fast and the Furious franchise. <laughs> it's all about family. It's all about racing. Um, and <laughs> uh, I understand, like, when I was reviewing, uh, researching this particular episode, Bruce, like you said, didn't know shit about cars. He actually had to consult about if a 69 Chevy can actually handle a <laughs> fuel head. <laughs> I mean, the three of us, we've known shit about cars. No, we, we just not, know that we, <laughs> but we're not, we're not known. I mean, there's two things. Like he said, he's like, Hey, I've never worked a day in my life. Uh, uh, but I always wrote about the working man. And I think that, you know, part of that was that, you know, the E street band was probably the hardest working band in show business. And, he let it all hang out on the stage and expected everybody to work as hard as possible and give the guy that, you know, scraped to get back to ticket prices. He's, he's gone on record that, you know, he looks to the back and he wants to make sure that the guy that was saved for a month to get to the show or whatever it is, um, gets their money's worth and they work that hard. And even if he's not right, you know, even if he didn't work in the factory, he's working just as hard in his own way on his art. Nobody can deny that. That's where I, I think that, you know, when he writes about working hard, the guy gets it. He's worked hard to get to where he is, and he works hard to this day. Um, so even though he knows nothing about working in a factory, he can still write about it, uh, or his dad worked there. But to the cars, too, yeah, probably surrounded by car culture, fascinated by it. But I think he got a little bit more in trouble when he wrote about cars until he knew how to drive a car when he was writing about them. But uh, he sure faked it until he made, he, he made it on that front. For sure, yeah. Um, but racing in the street is a, an emotional high point on this record. Um, I think it's a solid track. Uh, it doesn't hit me in the feels as much as something in the night, but it, it certainly is right up there. Interesting. I'd have it reversed, but they both, they both get you. Um, yeah. And, uh, look out for live versions on this one. I think live, it's always good. And also the version on the promise is kind of a different arrangement. It's more upbeat. Uh, and I think it's well worth someone's time. It's the first track on the promise box set. It's on your streaming devices. If you'd like to check it out. Uh, so that's the end of side a side B starts with the promised land. Promised Land, it may be my favorite Bruce Springsteen song. It uh, has been for a while. It's, it might, it, it's probably has a good chance of holding on to its top spot. Everything about this song is why I think people should give 
this album, this group a shot if they haven't. Um, I mean, I don't think there's many people out there that have not listened to Bruce Springsteen. Uh, probably, you know, against their will, maybe. But if you've just always wrote him off as uh, this one thing, this is the track I would introduce people to. Uh, it, it has defiance. It has a, a sense of optimism to it. It has a big, loud sound. It showcases many of the things I love when used uh, tools in their arsenal, which is awesome harmonica. This is my favorite uh, E Street harmonica. Awesome saxophoning. This is one of my favorite saxophone moments. Um, the, I mean, musically, it just it just comes out and gets you. Has a great riff. The harmonica riff is good. The guitar riff is good. Um, that there's a segment of the song where it goes from a brief guitar solo into an amazing saxophone solo and I can just picture Clarence jumping jumping next to Bruce playing it live Uh, whenever Clarence would play the saxophone solos live, of course, it hit, hit him with the spotlight, but he would always, if he's not taking center stage, he's making his presence known. Um, a lot of times him and Bruce would be back to back and it would just look amazing, iconic. That saxophone solo goes into the harmonica solo. Then goes back into the third verse. And while he's singing the third verse and his voice sounds perfect, there are the rest of the band is doing vocalizations about it, which then goes into a movement where he starts singing about blow away uh, the dreams that tear you apart, blow away the dreams that break your heart, blow away the lies that leave you nothing but lost and brokenhearted. And while he's doing this, the drums are pounding. And then it kicks back into the uh, chorus. Well, there's a dark cloud rising from the desert floor. I pack my bags and I'm heading straight into the store. Gonna be a twister to blow everything down. They ain't got the faith to stand its ground. Blow away the dreams that tear you apart. Blow away the dreams that break your heart. Blow away the lies that leave It's just, it gives me chills just talking about it. Uh, that's just musically. Lyrically, uh, there's some lines on this thing 
uh, that just paint such a picture and give you such a feel uh, of what he's trying to say. You know, the dogs on Main Street howl because they understand. What the hell? That's amazing. The dogs out in Main Street are howling because they, they feel how you feel. Um, Mr. I ain't a boy. Oh, I'm a man. <laughs> just that one line. That's so defiant. Mr. I ain't a boy. I'm a man. I, I love it. And the song's kind of, it's kind of similar uh, about Badlands. I mean, I, to me, I think they're, uh, they're cousins of each other. Um, but to me, promised land is more about standing up against cynicism and hopelessness. It's very easy to be cynical. And even in this fucking tough world, uh, you should try to maybe, you know, strive to get, you know, what you deserve or to be treated right. And in these, this, this, these days of division and cynicism, I think a song saying, fuck you. No, I believe what's right. And it's this. And I believe in a promised land. I love it. Oh yeah. It's for sure. A cool song. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but this one is like big on the Springsteen lore. Uh, you know, he, uh, I think rented a car like a classic car and, and he and some members of his uh, like little Stevie and some members of his band drove through the American Southwest and were inspired by what they saw. Um, and you know, the Southwest is a beautiful place, uh, you know, high desert, stuff like that. Um, and, uh, you know, in a, in the song itself, uh, I think you, you hit the nail on the head, Steve. Uh, you know, it really is just, you know, you can leave a past behind and start new and, and, and have hope and that hope can, you can, you can realize that. Um, you know, our, our, the American Southwest, the West in general is, is the youngest part of our country. And, and, you know, especially when he recorded this, there was always this feeling of starting anew. I appreciate that. The blow away part, Steve, you mentioned is so amazing. Like that is just, yeah. Call and response. That's a band leader just killing shit. That part of the song. It's really, really good. Um, yeah, I like this a lot. There's some great sax work in it. Very cool song sneaks up on you. Yeah. And you're, and you're right. Uh, the traveling across the deserts, uh, definitely informed the song. And then they, they became fans of the desert. So you're correct, sir. Yeah. I do see the fact that it, um, somehow is the, the flip side to the coin of Badlands. The fact that they're looking for that promised land in order to feel everything is right in the world and the universe. One particular stanza that really stands out for me is something that I think the three of us can relate to. I've done my best to live the right way. I get up every morning and go to work each day, but your eyes go blind and your blood runs cold. Sometimes I feel so weak. I just want to explode. Mm-hmm. Man, yep. good God. That hits to the bone of any working individual in this country. Um, just struggling to get by, hoping for that promised land, hoping things will get better one day. All of this will mean something. Um, and explode and tear this whole town apart. Take a knife and cut this pain from my heart. For somebody itching for something to start. Man, just fucking beautiful. That's poetry, man. 
And when he's, he's saying those parts, they're usually ended with some great little just drum fills by Max that accentuate it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's the American uh, fucking story right there, if you ask me. And he is able to sum it up in, you know, less than a paragraph. It's, uh, it's something. It definitely it goes to the heart. I feel like it could cross red and blue uh, on this one. Well, remember, Mark, Bruce was in that unfortunate, uh, the middle truck commercial during the Super Bowl one year, which was like this weird coded, like both sides thing, trying to be like, why, why can't we all get along? And I was like, oh, Bruce, God damn it. Come on. Not you. There's <laughs> one person. I, I know exactly. I, I feel there, there's one side of the coin that definitely is going to be on the right side of history. And Sometimes this both sides stuff just doesn't work, but I do think at the heart of it, we can all relate in some fashion. I, I, I do state. think I, I, it's so weird that if you look at it, the workers plight is actually a really, truly a leftist position um, because in the end it's anti-capitalist and it's, you know, standing up for, you know, people getting paid their fair share and, and, and getting health care and all that kind of stuff. And uh, yet when you boil it down, there's plenty of right wing, you know, blue collar people that are just like, yeah, fuck. Yeah, I need to, I need to make more money. I don't know. I, I, I do Love think it. for that reason, Bruce is in an interesting place where you can talk. He can cross an aisle here and there. I uh, I'm pretty sure a lot of the. The hardcore right wingers probably wrote him off, um, and it is interesting though. I mean, that, that's a continuing thing of people voting against their best interests. I mean, I was actually listening to a podcast tonight where this guy was talking to the leader of a union in Pennsylvania, and all his guys were all about Pat Mastriano, whoever that was, running for governor, I think. And he was like, guys. Like, this is not your guy. He's going to smash our unions. And they were like, nah, fuck it. He's our guy. You know, this is this is our, we're wearing the red hats. And he's like, oh my God, you guys, you don't understand. <laughs> um, he's not good for us. And some people have trouble seeing that. Um, but yeah, after that commercial about being in the middle, I'm sure Tom Morello was calling Bruce being like, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, anyways, uh, yeah, this song though is amazing. And it is something everybody could agree on. And it is, uh, yeah, probably my favorite Springsteen song. And that section I talked about earlier, that's the guitar solo to the saxophone, back to the harmonica. It's every time it's cloud nine. And it goes into, uh, after that track, you got to take it down a notch again, sequencing. And it goes into factory. The bluntly tiled factory, the work, the working, 
just the working life. This is a brief song. It sounds like what it's about. It sounds mundane. It is pretty. And it's about a guy, maybe his dad, the friends. He was surrounded by people that were the working man. And the struggle that you have just trying to work and get by, kind of like what we were talking about in the last track. Um, he would start exploring this a little bit more on other albums. A lot of it explored, especially on uh, some of the quieter records. Uh, it's a pretty little brief song. And it reminds me of Tom Waits, funny enough. Um, you know, Tom Waits and Springsteen were contemporaries. And I think one thing that they share in common besides the song Jersey Girl, which uh, Tom wrote and Bruce covered, and they played live once together, and it's f- wonderful. Um, is they both were great storytellers. They were troubadours. But they both wrote good little songs about people or like everyday stuff. Especially back in the 70s, Tom wrote a lot about people on the fringes or in the city just trying to get by. And I think Bruce did that a lot too. And I can imagine Tom Waits uh, making a song like Factory. Um, a basic song about getting up, going to work, coming back home. It's the shortest song on the record. And I think it's because it's the shortest such concept that he has on this record. It's just of that nature. This is the working man song. We get up, we go to the whistle blows and from bed to, you know, uh, sunset, we are just the working man. And I know that Bruce is a man of the people. I would say this song is probably my least favorite off the record. It's not bad. If Tom Waits was to cover it, I think we would hear more junkyard sounds. Um, it's fine. It just doesn't have the dynamics that the rest of the record really uh, holds to. But it, like I said, it's the shortest song on the, on the album. So it's not necessarily a terrible song. It's just, it's, it's there for me. Mark, it's, it's not my favorite. Mark, Mark, yeah. Mark, you know, I'll only do this if you're missing the point and you're missing the point. The, uh, it's a very short song. It's not dynamic musically. Fair enough. But the genius of the song is that in the first verse, I watch dad go to work through the rain. He enters the factory and the factory gives him life. And then the very next verse, dad leaves and the factory has sucked all the life out of him. He's a husk of a man. And it's like, it's the, it's so powerful how it shows that like that, that the life just in one day uh, absolutely like you just see your father just uh, crippled by his work. I don't know. I don't know. They're they're lyrically. It's a impactful song. Yes, I agree with you, Eric. It, lyrically, it's an impactful song. Musically, it just doesn't necessarily do it for me. Um, so I think it's bringing half of the equation. Fair, fair. I, I also think it might. I don't know if it's meta. I don't know how much this was on their mind, but it's called Factory. Very basic name. One word. That's what the song's about. Factory. And then it's very brief. It's kind of repetitive and subdued. It might be by design. It's just boring. Um, I don't think it's bad. I don't think it sounds bad in my ears. But uh, yeah, it's, it, it, this isn't nobody's top 50 Bruce Springsteen songs. Uh, but it has a place in this record. I think it helps paint the picture of what he's saying here. On to Streets of Fire, something that's a little bit more passionate. 
Funny enough, Mark, this is my least favorite song in this record, but it's not a bad song. It's still a good song because this is a great record. Um, but to me, this song kind of has like a it's kind of a, a little bit of a leftover from the earlier Springsteen to me. This is a little bit of uh, greetings, maybe even some of the. Uh, you know, the, the, the looks across the city stuff that you might find on the other albums. Um, I just, just, it's, it's my least favorite song in a great record. And I don't dislike it. If a song like this is your filler, you're doing something right. Uh, you're on fire yourself. If this is your filler, now, I don't think filler is even the appropriate word, but, uh, you know, the bottom has to be somewhere. And for me, it's this song. What do you think about it, Eric? Yeah, I, I like, I like this song. It might be because it reminds me of the film Streets of Fire, uh, starring Willem Dafoe, Rick Moranis. Guarantee, Diane guarantee Lane. you, it's named after. It has to be named after this song. Has to <laughs> yeah. Be. What a ridiculous movie and a great, uh, great time. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, uh, this song itself has some really good shreddery, and um, I actually think it holds onto that edge that it that the album starts with. Uh, production wise and um, you know it's uh, he says I am the darkness which I feel is so fucking emo and Batman-y which works for me um, and his vocal delivery is is, is, is is a lot of fun and it's, it's a very bitter song about somebody blaming the world for their mistakes and that's okay there's a place for that too uh, I don't know I like this my notes say it's one of my favorite songs in the album so I'm going to stick by that no, you should. Like I said earlier, some people called Tunnel Love their favorite album. It's uh, the, the, the Bruce <laughs> means different things to different people. And yeah, the guitar solo is great. Um, there is a more like Adam Raised the Cane. This one has like some really like just angry vocals and howling and uh, very passionate. I mean, the last the last time in the song where he yells fire, it's like 11 seconds long when he says fire. So that's fun. Uh, Mark, how do you feel about streets of fire? <laughs> I was amused when you were telling me that it was your least favorite song off the record, because it may be in contention for one of my favorite yeah, ones. Same. On the <laughs> there go. I mean, a crossfire <laughs> hurricane, like the first track. <laughs> um, it has that anger of him just fucking stewing as he's walking down the street just don't fucking talk to me um i <laughs> i love it um it, you get bruce at his angriest and his most dejected um i guess there was a reviewer um by the name of dave marsh who at the time was a very influential rock critic um because 
this necessarily wasn't like well received completely. I think that it received like, oh, Bruce was a little mad on this record. Um, and he said, um, the subject matter of the songs fulfills the hype that previously surrounded. What they've always said was that someday Bruce Springsteen would make rock and roll that would shake men's souls and make them question the direction of their lives. And this is one of those songs that just like wakes you up a little bit. Um, I, I love I, I, I don't know. I, I got to tell you, it's it's definitely in contention for one of my favorite ones on the record. I don't that's know. fantastic. That's, yeah, <laughs> that's Jeff, something. That, that, that's the quality of this album. Is it? Yeah. One man, it's like least favorite could be the other one's favorite. Also, it's kind of the. Uh, for lack of any kind of better term here, the pace of this song that which it moves Usually album, like I don't mind slow songs, but usually songs that slink along like this are not my go-tos. So he's got nothing to, to, to prove to us, but he wants to prove it all night, which is the next track. Prove it all night. We go riding in the rain, running south. We're down through the pines. Weekends in the sun in that cheap motel down by the dynamo. We loved each other till there was nothing left and drove that old car as hard and fast as she would. We'll drive that dusty road from Mondo to Angelina to buy you a gold and a pretty dress of blue. Baby, just one kiss. We'll get this thing for you. I kiss the seal. I pray tonight. I kiss the prove it all night. Prove it all night. Girl, there's nothing else that we can do. Say prove it all night. Prove it all night. And girl, I prove it all night for you. Everybody's got a hunger. A hunger that can't resist. There's so much that you want. Much more than this. Well, if dreams came true, I wouldn't that be nice. But this ain't no dream. We're living all through the night. Prove it all night. Uh, is it about how the band were are the hardest working band in show business? Is it Horn Dog Bruce telling us that uh, all night long he's gonna prove it to you, baby? I don't know either way, but I love this song. Um, it's got a great saxophone solo. It's got some throwback R&B dreamy guitar strumming that I like. Um, I don't want it all the time, but when the E Street Band peppers it in, it's great. Uh, it's got a monster of a guitar solo. And uh, while the guitar solo is ripping, the bass line and the drums are holding it down. It's another track where it has those like wind chime piano plinks that they uh, can do so well. Uh, 
the the E Street Band does dream like piano plinking very well. Um, the drums are doing some great work on the outro, and uh, there's some on brand howling in the outro, which we're getting a lot of in this record. A lot of howling. It really comes together for the last 30 seconds as the whole band's jamming and just Bruce is just uh, oh, oh 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 it's uh, it's it's fun. Um, I love that lyric. I've been working all night trying to keep my hands clean. Or working all day trying to keep my hands clean. Working working all the time to try to keep your hands clean. That's a that's a that's a, that's a this doesn't work, you know. You're, you're, you work to get your hands dirty. So if you're working all the time trying to keep your hands clean, that's a paradox. And I love that lyric. Eric, how do you feel about Prove It All Night? Well, I also thought that it was a uh, some sort of uh, 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 pillow talk song. Um, but it actually has like this sense of optimism about it. It's, uh, you know, like uh, two people that, uh, you know, maybe believe in this idea of love and, and someday they'll, they'll, they'll be able to fulfill that. Uh, the chorus is super catchy. And then in the end, it turns into a big old jam. And it's, you know, mm-hmm. it's a lot of fun. A lot of fun. A lot of fun. Not ranked necessarily the highest on this record, but certainly a surprise. I enjoyed it. Yeah, there's another moment on this track where they use silence really well or almost silence, which is uh, it's just, it just sounds really sexy, too. It's where it, it drops down to just Bruce singing a couple of lines while it's just a kick drum slowly kicking and those pretty pianos just for a second. It's like 15 seconds. It's a. Uh, yeah, the song, the song is sultry. What do you think about Prove It All Night? Mark, have you thought about this song when you're proving it all night? Well, I always try to prove everything that I do at all times, whether it's day or night. You um, always do provide a lot of good notes and and uh, <laughs> statistics, and and yeah, you print it all out too on 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 cardstock. I appreciate that. I do, I do. I mean, I think Springsteen himself said that success requires sacrifice whether you're successful at uh, loving on your significant other or loving on the work that you do to provide for you and your family or honking on bobo honking on bobo um i mean that is one of the true benchmarks of success it's a key performance indicator kpi for those in the in the know dude i we used to have <laughs> For years, we had these meetings every Monday where every department would get together in the sales department. I'm going to rattle off my KPIs real quick. And like, I didn't, I didn't think to look it up for probably four years. What <laughs> is all Taylor KPIs like, <laughs> performance indicators is like, yeah, that makes sense. That's stupid. All right, moving on. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Growth <laughs> rates. Gotta love just focusing in on I, growth rates. I, I cared so little about what they were talking about that for almost four years, I did not ask. And I'm usually a curious man, but it finally got to me. And then I was like, oh, that's so banal. Uh, it makes me mad. So anyways. Um, one little anecdote that I enjoyed hearing about this particular track was when uh, he got into a, a cab I think he would even share this story uh, 
during live sessions that the cab driver always had to prove it all night to his boss to prove that he was a hard worker and uh, worth having around. Um, and there is a little bit of pranks, little, little, I made a funnies from Bruce and his friends where he would even trespass on um, Graceland and go and put graffiti on billboards and tag himself. That's gave Bruce a mustache and said, prove it all night. Where I'm going with that story, it's just that Bruce just seems to want to be able to show the rock community that the hardest working band in show business, he's going to prove that every night, all night. Uh, lyrically, I definitely get the sense that he's going to be fucking his girl all night to prove that he loves her. <laughs> <laughs> That's that. And on that note, and after when Mark gets this blue, we got to close it soon. So thank God we're at the last track. Uh, the title track off Darkness on the Edge of Town. Darkness on the Edge of Town. Well, But that blood had never burned in her veins Now here she's got a house up in Fairview In a style she's trying to maintain Well if she wants to sleep Well, folks, this is how you properly end a record. And rare do you find a song that is able to capture the thesis statement of the album sound kind of like the entire album in one song and then have the emotional through line of the record uh, come to a natural conclusion all in one place. Uh, whenever this song starts and I, I hear that drum, that slow drum kick and that uh, the, the piano and just the bass and you know what's coming, it's it's very subtle, it's menacing, and I'm excited of what I'm in for. And uh, what I'm in for is a track that emotionally, the intensity is ratcheted up to a point very quickly to the end of it. it, it the, the climax comes upon you, so uh, the table for the climax is there, and then when the climax happens, you're like, oh, this makes sense. I am emotionally overwhelmed. It, it, it sounds to me like the, like if you were to be in a, a streetcar named Desire and you strip yourself down to like you tear your T-shirt off in the rain and you're screaming Stella. It's kind of how like I feel when I at the end of this song. Uh, 
it's it's just howling at the stars and defiance that you will not be defeated uh and you're gonna conquer your demons but you know your demons are always gonna be there something i think about all the time is that even when you're able to get through your shit there's more shit to come and that's just the world man and the way it's displayed in the song where it talks about you know going up on the hill and you're not going to stop um it's 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 fantastic uh and that's just the lyrically and the emotional part of it and i'm sure eric's going to get more into that uh, but musically the piano carries a lot of the weight of the emotion. Um, uh, Ray Britain, Batan, um, really is able to build you up to where you need to be emotionally. And, uh, the guitar has some moments where it's almost, uh, answering, the verses where the guitar is clearly saying the darkness on the edge of town. <laughs> it's, I don't know how else to put it, but the guitar sings on this song. And I love it when guitars do that. And uh, also there's this section where Bruce starts playing and at, with the beat, he starts go it's in the distance. You hear him going, huh? Huh? And for such a song, it carries an emotional wallop. Having him grunting in it is amusing to me and very Springsteenian. Um, and something that Bruce said about these songs and this song is, uh, you've got to go inside yourself and pull up all the things that mean something to you in order for the, the audience, uh, or, or in order for these things to mean anything to your audience. And this track I feel is a guy laying his emotions bare in a way you don't get a, from a lot of artists and uh, you got to respect it. And it's damn near perfect in, in my opinion. Oh yeah. Uh, title track. Great. I love the thematic connection to street racing as it still plays a piece on this song. Um, lyrically, uh, really? I mean, the way, the way I feel about it, it's kind of a guy sitting on his truck. that's just going to drive up a hill, but all right. I don't know. Uh, there's street racing <laughs> on the edge. Like, uh, no one asks any questions or looks too long in your face. Like, I don't know. There was a group of street racers. I don't know. I, I, I do feel like that's a piece of the song. Maybe I'm wrong. Um, but then he goes into like kind of talking about, uh, you know, why, why he's at this kind of spot where all he really wants is that adrenaline rush. Some folks are born of the good life. Other folks get it in any way. I lost my money. I lost my wife. Them things don't matter much to me now. And uh, tonight I'll be on that hill because I can't stop. I'll be on that hill with everything I got. 
So he, I don't know. I, I, I saw him race. I, I felt like it was another racing track. Maybe I'm wrong. No, no, you're right. Well, they're still racing out at the trestles. Yeah. You're right. With that blood, it never burned in their veins. And to me, I'm thinking he's talking about other people, but I get what you're saying. Right. right, right. Yeah. Uh, this song has this cool, like lurching bass and piano thump, like back and forth, mm-hmm. which builds the momentum. Uh, it gets bigger every verse. It adds bells. And there's like the structure of the song is really cool. Just as they add little pieces. It, architecturally, it's a really cool song. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a great closer. I, I, I enjoy it. Well done. There's two sections of lyrics on here that we got to talk about. It just, just emotional intensity. I just keep using that word, but well, everybody's got a secret son, something that they just can't face. Some spokes spend their whole lives trying to keep it. They carry it with them every step they take till someday they just cut it loose, cut it loose or let it drag them down. And he's yelling at this point when no one asks you any questions or looks too, looks too long in your face in the darkness on the edge of town. And then the, the, the final ver, the, the final section of verses. Um, yeah, someone you were saying, Eric, you know some folks are born into a good life, and other folks get it anyway, anyhow. Well, now I lost my money and I lost my wife. Them things don't seem to matter much now. And how does he react to this? Tonight I'll be on that hill because I can't stop. I'll be on that hill with everything I've got. With our lives on the line when dreams are found and lost. I'll be there on time and I'll pay the cost. For wanting things that can only be found in the darkness on the edge of town. This is a really defiant way to end this record that was all about, you know, the whole lawsuit and thinking that it was all going to get taken away from you and saying, nope, you know, you can go find me up there and I'm going to lay it all on the line no matter how it's going to end by the darkness on the edge of town. That's it's, it's fantastic stuff. And I do realize that when I read his lyrics out, I sound like shell Silverstein, Mark, how do you feel about this song? It's great. I mean, it is a fantastic closer. It may not be on the jungle land levels of closing out a record, um, but it's damn near close. Uh, the way that I see it, it's almost like a narrator, an observer, uh, commenting on some of the characters that we met earlier in this album. And um, it's the saddest town in fucking America. (laughs) Everyone is not living up to their full potential and just wishing there was something more. Um, And that darkness on the edge of town, uh, maybe this observer is where he's telling people that they can find him because even though in Main Street, where everything may look all nice and pretty, there's always going to be this kind of darkness that resides in every one of us and even in this town that he's talking about. Um, it's a great closer. Um, lyrically, it paints a picture. Musically, it uh, hits those emotional high points. It's great. I agree. And uh, at 43 minutes, it closes the album. And often I will listen to this album back to back as soon as it's done. It's a uh, great record. It doesn't stick around too long to mess up. And each song has just enough meat on the bones that leaves you wanting a little bit more. Um, it's a good song. It's a good album for a, a hot summer morning or a cold winter night alone. You know, it has 
lonely moments and then really intense moments. And uh, the whole, the whole, you know, Christopher Nolan must have been a boss fan because, you know, Michael Caine asks Master Bruce, why do we fall? Well, to pick ourselves back up. And I feel that the whole point of this album is just hitting the floor and picking yourself back up and trying to, you know, break on through. And it's, it's great. Um, I give this album easily a five. It is one of my favorite records. It's, it, it leaves you wanting more. It's got everything I like about Bruce and the E street band from the musicianship and the, 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 just the rock music quality, but it's not just meat and potatoes. You're getting various styles on here. You can kind of see where Bruce is going in the future with some of the stark lyrics. Uh, the lyrics mean just as much, but he strips them down to their essence. And um, yeah, I just think it's the sweet spot between Born to Run in the river and Nebraska, where uh, you can definitely tell that all the, that, that same artist made all these records, but this one kind of has the best pieces from those, in my opinion. And um, yeah, the darkest on the edge of town. Five. Eric, how do you rate this record by Bruce Springsteen in the E Street Band? Right, good question. Because while while I appreciate Bruce and 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 can definitely enjoy the music, I don't always reach for it um, based on you know just my normal tastes. Not necessarily something I go for if it's any like comparison. How do we rate? Born to Run, I'd probably give it a five out of five. This one, I will give a four out of five. Uh, musically, it's usually compelling to me. Usually compelling to me. And lyrically, it's always compelling to me. Uh, I like what it's about. And, you know, I never don't like what it's what how it sounds. And often am surprised at how much I do like how it sounds. Four out of five. Yeah, you know, uh, I think, uh, you know, Mark brought up the fragile earlier when we were talking about the river because the river's unwieldiness. But um, emotionally, how fans of this artist react to them is I've found that uh, I feel like Born to Run and Darkness are kind of like the downward spiral and the fragile in that many Bruce fans' favorite album is the, fra- <laughs> is the fragile. Many Bruce fans, they probably are. Many Bruce fans' favorite record is this one, but they admit that Born to Run is a superior record, where many other ones' favorite album is this one, but they know this is the best record. But Born to Run's pretty good. Um, but it's usually those two. And uh, anyways, I, uh, I respect your opinion. Mark, how do you feel about this one? This record is practically perfect in every which way. Um, I think that it needs further examination to fully appreciate everything that is going on here, though. Um, It's not as easily digestible as Born to Run. Um, It does speak that truth and honesty throughout that, despite sounding like a celebration at times musically, lyrically, it just doesn't hold that same feeling. So it really does require the listener to sit down and really pay attention I think this is probably Springsteen's heaviest record in themes and maybe in sound. Um, Without a doubt, it's definitely my second favorite Springsteen record after Born to Run. Um, I think, like I said, near perfect. 
So I'm giving it a 4.99. The only thing that (laughs) I know, the only thing that like, I'm not so wild about, and I know that you two kind of tried to convince me a little bit on factory, but factory was just a, just something that just I emotionally like resonated with. It'd be a perfect record. It's, It's wild. Got it. Uh, yeah, I didn't pick Born to Run for this season because I felt like that was too easy. Um, and also, even though a, a zillion words have been written on this album, uh, a zillion times a zillion have been written on Born to Run. So I thought we should go with this one. And I'm glad we did. It's still a long, good discussion that will be a joy to edit into at least two episodes. <laughs> I, you made the, the right. You made the right choice, Steve. I, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> For the guys that said that no more double episodes. Well, got to do it. Um, Don't want this episode being longer than one of his concerts. And I actually have like three more pages of random notes that we're not going to go into. So listeners, if you want to learn why he's called the boss, that's been discussed to death. Look it up yourself. If you want to know the interesting story behind the album cover of Darkness on the Edge of Town, where Bruce looks very sexy, look it up yourself. What's next, Eric? All right, Mark, you got your list? I do. So we have eight records on the board. I, I think that since the, the piano player from a couple Peter Gabriel albums brought us to this record tonight where he's been the piano player for the entire existence of the E Street Band, and we mentioned Tom Waits and their troubadour connections, and Tom Waits... And Bruce Springsteen shared a stage once. It's going to be Tom Waits. Maybe. I don't know. Okay. It's kind of high for Tom Waits. Six. Ah, damn. Six. Nowhere near Tom Waits. Sorry, buddy. It is one of my picks. And um, it's not really going to be a smooth transition between these two artists. So it was a record released in 1998. It's titled Mezzanine. By Massive Attack. All right. So it's one of my picks. All right. Uh, we're going to the trip hop uh, genre. And I I think it would have been more seamless to go to a Arcade Fire or a Tom Waits to kind of continue this through line. But the Diamond Dice has thrown us into a clearly different direction with Massive Attack's Mezzanine. A massive uh, Peter Gabriel in a massive attack would have been uh, another a sm- smoother transition, but it's fine. Yeah, um, it's true. Are there any Bruce Springsteen? Ma- I'm just I'm just uh, curious now. Any connections between the two? Of them? Uh, <laughs> I don't believe so. Probably not. <laughs> probably not. <laughs> not finding anything. Yeah. Um, well, that's maybe fun. we can get our uh, dear friend Matt Thomas to uh, call in from his flip phone (laughs) to drop his that that reminds me uh, uh, to uh, listen uh, listener of the show and friend uh, Andrew shamed me for not getting him on the Radiohead episode then I asked if he wanted to be on the Bruce one and I think he kind of accepted but then uh, we didn't follow up on it so that didn't happen and also my buddy Ian I was uh, almost on this one then he got busy so the fourth chair went unfulfilled for Bruce. I tried, though. Um, 
Yeah, we can try to get old uh, tin cans and string on here. Yeah. Good luck with that. Well, he'll he'll just come over in a hot air balloon uh, <laughs> with a megaphone. Supplied by the Chinese? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Topical. Uh, well, well, thank you, dear listeners, for joining us once again for these uh, back-to-back episodes. One of which was uh, the history and the discography of Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, which is something we were going to stop doing, but here we are. And then joining us for this very good discussion on Darkness on the Edge of Town. Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band are great. And millions upon millions upon millions of people agree. It's one of those rare times for me where I sync up with some kind of zeitgeist. So that's fun. We will catch you next time as we bring you closer to pod. (laughs) That'll work.